British Art Talks from the Paul Mellon Centre, championing new ways of understanding British art, history and culture. Come in. The house that I grew up in, it's in central Cambridge and it's quite a big Georgian townhouse that used to belong to the university and um, they sold them all to academics. So it's a strange terrace of eccentric academics. <laughs> Sit. Good girl. This is Gladys, my puppy. Um, she is seven months old and she comes everywhere with me, so she's here. She's been such a good dog, isn't he? Are you going to say something? Welcome to the Autumn 2020 series of British Art Talks. I am Anna Reid, Head of Research at the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. This series foregrounds three contemporary artists touching on the highly distinctive and unexpected ways in which they both construe and work with histories of their field. Lucy Scare lives and works in Glasgow. She was born in 1975. She was nominated for the Turner Prize in 2009. This year, as a result of pandemic conditions and of her father's deteriorating health, Lucy, along with her siblings, had to empty out her childhood home a townhouse at Belvoir Terrace in Cambridge. Lucy's story of leaving the house is an account that is on the one hand deeply personal, and yet it speaks of historical processes. The house and its material appear as if something like the unconscious of her formation as an artist. I met Lucy in Cambridge on the 15th of October. I'm Lucy Scare. A sculptor predominantly. I'm here in the family house in Cambridge um, which is the house that I grew up in and it's just on the market at the moment it's it's sold it's under offer so I've been in the process of looking through all of the things and clearing the house with my siblings and in the clearing of the house I've come to realize how influential this place is and the choices that probably mostly my dad made on the things that are here, the books and the artifacts like the ceramics and, and painting. They've been really influential on my choices as, a, as an artist. And it's amazing that I can come here and witness that and see that and see how, how those things have influenced me. My parents moved into the house in the 1960s and the house went through various transformations during that time. First they were just renting it and then they came to buy it and started their family and then as we grew up and left, my mum also left and my dad ended up being the sole occupant of the house. It became almost a bit of a bachelor pad. My dad was very uh, prolific in printing out parts of the internet and, and annotating them and, and marking them up. He's a scientist. The house became stranger still as my dad developed Alzheimer's 
and he began to collect a lot of things. So he would forget that he had already bought some highlighter pens, for example, and then he would go to the shop and he would think, what things do I like? And so he would just buy the things that he liked in the shop again and then put them where they belonged in the house, which all sounds quite rational, but then there began to be huge heaps of highlighter pens, like over 90, 100 highlighter pens. And the same with milk bottles, like plastic handled milk jugs. He just really liked them, so he collected them and put them on all the surfaces. Also, uh, washing up sponges, huge pile of them. And I kind of re-entered the house at that point and I recognised things from my own practice in, in the way that he was behaving because I also like series of things. I like collections of things. I like variants of the same object. So at that point, I started to become really interested in the house as a site for my own work and approaching it almost like a not a found object because it's so deeply familiar to me, but as something that I could work in. I think that the way that my dad collected and arranged things and the artworks that he loved had quite a different kind of relationship to a normal ownership relationship. I think that he had them because he used them in a way. He used them for his life. And I think that he, my, my father, was very influenced by Jim Ede, who he knew, who was the founder of Kettle's Yard. Kettle's Yard is like an art work in itself, almost. It's a house in Cambridge that I used to go to a lot. I still do go there a lot, but I went there through my childhood. And it's an arrangement of lots of different modernist artworks, most of them, particularly British modernism. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about in relation to British art, I thought about this way that people collect and arrange things in their homes and that there are all these British artists doing that. When I was looking into Jim Eade and Kettle's Yard, I found this interview with John Goto, who was artist in residence at Kettle's Yard. It's the last recorded interview with Jim Eade and he, he's speaking, they're both speaking about death because John Goto's father has recently died and I was struck by how Jim Eade talks about about stillness and about death in this, in this interview and how he relates the objects in the house to this sense of stillness John Goto I've come to view Kettle's Yard as a single artwork a montage made from paintings, furnishings and objects. Jim Eade. This fits in a little with what I'd thought. Whenever I've heard the word collection, I've said to myself, well, this isn't a collection. It's a number of things, perhaps. If you don't love the things you are going to present with an enormously human love, then what's the good? I find that I'm very occupied with light and shadows. I had a group of pebbles arranged in a tray from the lightest towards the darkest and a woman came in with her granddaughter who picked them up and they went whoosh all over the room. Well, that's what happens, even with grown-ups. John Goto. In my first few weeks at Kettle's Yard, I saw it more as a succession of still lives. Jim Eade. I never thought of it 
in that way. But curiously enough, the other day, someone said they were thinking about all those still lives at Kessel's Yard. You see, I believe in stillness, if only I could achieve it, which I don't think I can. Harmony is another word for it. Stillness is really a very strange word. To be still meaning to be attentive, to take in, to search, and indeed to be at that place where you don't take in anything at all, just to know. As with the child knocking over the pebbles, is there sometimes a contradiction between family life and this quest for stillness? Yes, there is. I have been very fortunate in building my own city, almost. The moment the door was open, there was harmony. Five or six people would sometimes come to Kettle's yard, and that would seem like an enormous crowd. Then twelve would come, and then fourteen, and I had to scatter them to different places, until finally I could absorb, say, thirty coming to that tiny little house, and they didn't look as if they were there at all. And here, later in the interview, John Goto. You feel that death is part of a natural process, even part of an aesthetic process? Yes. Take, for example, those twigs. Death, I have thought about it quite often, and it's come to me to think about it as if in a dream. I have the feeling quite strongly that if it's anything, it's coherence and balance. There's no need for people to be chattering to each other or be troubled by one thing or another. There is no trouble anymore. It's all straightforward and clear. Death is not a thing to be afraid of in any way. It's a cohesion of natural intensities. Sometimes when I look into these great lights and there is a a flutter of wind and leaves... It's as if a whole village is coming towards this garden. A lot of people together, like in a French picture, perhaps. I knew about death as a child because on one occasion I was told to run up and find Grandpa. We were waiting for him to come down and say a prayer. I went up and there he was lying on the bed with his mouth open and his eyes and he didn't say a word. So I knowing full well that he had died, came running downstairs saying, Grandpa is on his bed and won't say a word. Everyone rushed up and I was told to go back. When I was finally allowed to see him, he had a sheet over his head. They lost a wonderful opportunity of introducing me to this thing. They were frightened and he was the only sensible, quiet person. I'm interested in Jimmy's feeling to share Kettle's Yard rather than to have it as his own house Um, and how the object came to have a kind of shared meaning because of the way that he arranged them and also gave access to people. And that reminded me of, of something that I read in an amazing book by... Christina Keir, which is called Imagine No Possessions. And it really charts um, a different relationship to objects than one of ownership. And she's looking largely at Russian constructivism and this notion of a socialist object 
I'm interested in this idea of the of the socialist object and how it can be different from a ownership of an object. Um, and Rachenko speaks about the the things in our hands that must be equals, that must be co-workers or comrades. And I'm interested in that notion of, of the use and the equality of an object to a person, but also in the kind of anthropomorphism that that implies that the object is given a human agency. So among the things that my dad had in the house when we were clearing it out was this flint, which he'd picked up on West Runton Beach. We used to go there quite often and he would um, always come back with as many rocks as the car would hold in the boot so that it would always be <laughs> right down on its springs. And he had these flints around the house. And one of the flints he had reminded him of the head of a horse. So he made an oil painting of the flint turned into a horse. And later in my own work, I made a very similar move of turning these sculptures that had been abstract into animals in a hunt. So um, mine were hares and rabbits, but I saw this parallel strand in my dad's artwork. And indeed, it seems more widely that anthropomorphism is a way of finding a kind of narrative in the world that you go out and you project what you want to see onto something that's there but it's not a wholly convincing transformation the thing still remains itself even though it's seen also as a horse my dad did an example of that undoing of anthropomorphism when he found a flint on west runton beach in the 1960s and he was struck by how much a henry moore sculpture it looked like and Henry Moore had spent holidays uh, just down the coast there, and he'd collected those flints and then made them into figures. My dad thought it was urgent that he should go and bring this flint to Henry Moore to show him. So he did. He went and made an appointment with Henry Moore. And my parents, when they were newlyweds, went and Henry Moore was had them for tea, and my dad produced this flint. And Henry Moore was actually really patient and nice with them and kept the flint and so I think it's still in his in his uh, house or studio there one of my favorite anthropomorphisms is in my friend and collaborator Rosalind Nashashibi's film Eyeballing she was on a residency in New York and didn't know anyone in the city but was surrounded by people and I think to find a way through that quite isolated time she started seeing and filming faces everywhere so you get the back of her electric toothbrush with the with the bristles as a little sprout of hair and you get the plug socket with its eyes and nose and mouth and then out into the city you get blank windows as eyes and a awning as a kind of gaping smile so you go around the city being shown these faces that aren't faces. They're convincing because the film's shown you how to see them, but they're not convincing in terms of actual full-on believing those things. I think going out into the world with a certain narrative 
is something that we do all the time, but I love this way of making it so obvious that it's in the eye of the beholder. A huge influence on me is Paul Nash, the British surrealist, and also kind of a realist because he was a war artist both in the First and Second World Wars and saw all manner of chaos and disruption. And I think that that really led to this drive to try to cohere things again. And he wrote an amazing guide to Dorset that was part of a series produced by Shell and ed edited by John Betjeman. I have it here, I'm just gonna read the start of it. He starts with a chapter called The Face of Dorset. When we speak about the face of the earth, the face of the waters, quoting that ancient imaginative expression, we probably refer to an, to an extent, extent or expanse of space rather than, than the suggestion of a featured, featured mask. mask. But in describing some comparatively small, localised area of land and sea, it is perhaps possible to think of it in a more literal sense, as in fact something like a countenance. At least I've sought to conceive of such an actual symbol in this description of the county of Dorset. As I see it, there appears a gigantic face composed of massive and unusual features, at once harsh and tender, alarming yet kind, seemingly susceptible to moods, but in secret overcast by a noble melancholy, or simply the burden of its extraordinary inheritance. Indeed, the past is always evident in that face, and it's not always the furthest part which is the most assertive. There are certain places at certain times where the record of some drama can start into life as a scar glows with sudden memory. Such places at such times are inseparable from the deeds associated with them. The wreckings of Chesil Bank, the vile robberies of Cranbourne Chase, the murderer Corf, or the sadism of the bloody Aziz. But the face of Dorset is not long distorted by such memories. On a sunny day, the delightful vagaries of the chase are enchanting to watch under changing lights. The bank lapped by a blue sea, fringed by tamarisk and harbouring 1,000 swans, is only a pleasant dream as you lie on Abbotsbury Hill. Nor can you think of Jeffreys while you eat crumpets in his lodgings at Dorchester. Corf alone is implacable. No mood or nature or human intrusion can affect that terrific personality. No one who has looked on Maiden Castle can be expected to tolerate its comparison to the furrows on however vast a brow. An analogy may be apt for general characterization, but, but yet, yet it, it may fall apart, apart against, against the, the deliberate, deliberate translation, translation of detail. Of detail. Let, Let us therefore sidestep from imagery to fact. I can see that a lot of my tactics, my own work, have come from drawing things straight from art history and incorporating them myself, but like anthropomorphism, not in a way that is meant to permanently transform or be wholly convincing. So I've made a work called My Terracotta Army, My Amber Room, 
my red studio and it's a kind of um variant for myself of of the chinese terracotta army and of the amber room that went missing during the russian revolution and um, matisse's red studio and i've brought all of those things together into one really excessive work Likewise with Rosalind Nashashibi, we've made a work that refers to Paul Nash's Flight of the Magnolia, and which is an amazing painting by Paul Nash in which he sees in a cloudy sky at sunset, he sees a flying magnolia that's blossoming. And it's relevant and terrifying to him because it was during the time that an invasion by air to Britain was expected so that the sky might flower with parachutes. So his vision of this giant magnolia flower is very arresting and also alarming. And with Rosalind Nashashibi, we made a film called Our Magnolia that imagines what that site of the magnolia would be for us. And for us, it's Margaret Thatcher and her bouffant hairstyle we're like that's our magnolia and so it's a kind of borrowing that starting point but also a transformation of it or an extension of it and I think that that borrowing and using forms and other artists work has been something that's gone through all of my practice that brings me back to this house um, when I came one time to visit my dad when I was planning to begin my project of making works in the house. I parked my car at the back and I came up the, the back garden and I opened the back gate. And instead of seeing up the garden, as I usually do, I was confronted by this mass of flowers that was about three feet from my face. And what had happened is that there was a huge rose that had grown up through the apple tree and it had become so weighty as it was in bloom that it had snapped the apple tree stem, stalk, trunk. It had snapped the apple tree trunk and the canopy of flowers had fallen and blocked the back garden. So that somehow turned into a work of mine where I, in my old bedroom I replaced the panes of the window with pieces of lapis lazuli. So that experience of not seeing through, but seeing a blank, but a very rich decorative blank became incorporated in my work. And I've made various works in the house that are made from the house, by which I mean they're made from the front door, the floorboards, the window in the bedroom. Each of the works consumes part of the house. So while they are very tied to my own memories of this place and my own associations, they also destroy the house. They're quite brutal and almost like a kind of cannibalism of this place. So if we were to look under the carpets here, we would find replaced floorboards in the shape of a box. And what I did was over a 
period of a few months, I inlaid the floor with lapis lazuli tiles, with pieces of bronze. I made copper lids for my dad's bowls. He's got lots and lots of, of pottery bowls. So I made specific copper lids to cover each of the bowls. And then I cut them and inlaid them in the floor. And a lot of the, of the inlay in the floor matches where furniture went and charted movements that I'd made in the furniture and in the house. And when I'd finished decorating part of the box as it still lay in the floor, I would put the carpet back over and then go away and then come back and do, and do more. So there's this kind of cumulative decoration of the floor. And then when I came to assemble the piece, I lifted these floorboards out and I made them into boxes. And then the boxes went off for an exhibition. The main source of all the treasures in the house is the attic, so we can go up there now. Yeah, this is a tiny proportion of what was here. This is old, old film. I think it's like a biological, maybe electron microscope images. Looks of some kind of worm or something. Anyway, it's a it's a treasure trove. At the moment, this room is not really as it was. Um, this is a tiny, tiny amount of the things that were here. So it was more of a kind of thicket of objects um, until we've cleaned it up. I think the things in this house are so much part of the house as I knew it that I find it impossible to really separate. So it's quite odd to see this room in such an empty state for me and in such a rational state because it was always much, much more filled with things and the things were filled with possibilities and relations to each other and I suppose to ideas and uses and uh, stories. I think it's going to be quite hard to leave for the final time. I do feel really good about a, a family moving in though because it's it's been a lovely place to live. And your father went out and collected all of these himself. These are all his sort of finds. Yeah. Oh, that's a sea pod, isn't it? It's a pipe fish, dried pipe fish. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but lots of it's just random. So tell us a bit about the works that your dad made, because there are a lot of kind of life drawings but he did make sculptures as well and, and and tell us a bit more about that yeah he did make sculptures most of them were him adapting natural objects by adding things or sometimes sub subtracting things they looked quite kind of henry moore like but he also made models of molecules that he was working on and he, he used to make them up here kind of in parallel to these other things and he did make a lot of life drawings and then some paintings as well some 
just quite biological paintings of plants, but also these more transformative paintings of things like the flint turning into a horse. But I love that although he was a scientist by profession, he just always had this artistic life. When you talk about his uh, works depicting molecules, or I was thinking about some of the, the kind of abstract forms that come through these natural forms and the way that you've used the lozenge forms and quincunx forms in your works. And is there any connection between some of those forms? Well, yeah, because the those lozenge forms that I use are from, they're simplified from an emerald gem cut. So that would have been to do with the way that the molecules split in a emerald crystal so that when you cut the faces um, it reveals the structure of the material um, yeah but then I've just lifted it and adapted it so that's my wild card I suppose coming in bare as the house was unemptied cupboards and boxes remained in the attic and were just as Lucy's body of work full with stones, minerals and geological forms. And there was a hum, a sort of vibrancy in the structure of the house picked up by Freya, our producer. In the artist's childhood bedroom, where a print of a work by Paul Clay once hung above the mantelpiece, were the window panes which she blocked out with lapis lazuli. I asked Lucy about her use of this deep time blue in her works at the house. Yeah, it's funny, we're, we're sitting in the living room that probably I first saw pictures of lapis lazuli because my dad had a lot of books about Egypt and about ancient Egypt. It's almost like like those materials have just migrated from that bookshelf into real life being set into these floorboards of this room. So I think that a lot of the choices of materials just came from my quite childish dreamings about what those materials would be like that I'd seen in pictures. So we know that your father had, was very fond of Kettle's Yard and, and knew Jim Ede. And there's this sense, I think, throughout here that, that the influence of kind of British modernism and, and modernism and the community at Kettle's Yard or the, the kind of open house sense at Kettle's Yard is quite materially formative of, of your practice and I was interested in thinking about how you work in collaboration and and how you, you have, there's a kind of ecology around the way you work do, do those things link yes I think they do I think that this idea of using an object or using the work by another artist is very much from that kind of ethos of Kettle's Yard I suppose um, the way that you can be influenced and enriched by things that someone has gathered together. I think that that in my work relates to a kind of open door to the past or to other places or to other people's visions. And I think that that has been really apparent in my collaborations. Because I remember with, with Rosalind, when we first started working together, I thought, oh, brilliant, now I can imagine what her brain's like and just kind of stick it onto mine as like an extra room. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like in some ways the way that I've used 
for example, Brancusi's work, which I saw in Kettle's Yard, um, that I've, I've just used that as a form and repeated it in my own work. It's such a direct move, but I see it as very different from appropriation. I'm not trying to appropriate that work. I want to use it for what formally it does. And I think that that, that idea of interconnectedness between artists and the way that work formally is has come from from an ecology such as Kettle's Yard. It's really interesting to talk about Brancusi's bird in your work. Um, I'm thinking of your 2008 installation at the Chisenhill Gallery, The Siege, where you had Brancusi's ethereal, dematerialised birds that were kind of recast and sitting on the gallery floor as uh, a cast in coal. And they're part of a siege setup where they um, are being inundated with waves drawn of uh, Hokusai and Da Vinci. And there's this very embodied situation of kind of material forces. A lot of your works have that character to them. And I'm just thinking about how this house at this time is really subject to those external forces and how, how that's brought this work about, this use of the house. Yeah, I think in, in the siege, the installation that I made in the Chisholm I was interested in the idea of a siege because it kind of pits time against resources. And I thought about how if you are under siege somewhere, all of the things become rife for being repurposed, like a chair could become fuel or um, it could become a barricade, like there would be this possibility of radically changing the use of things and, and the meaning of things. And I used Brancusi's bird in space because it seems like it's both material object and something immaterial. I remember this great quote about about Brancusi's sculpture, The Newborn, that I've also used in another installation, which is, I think it's Bryony Fur refers to it as being part baby and part ball bearing, that it's like sits this kind of middle line between being a representation and just being a material object. And I think that, that in this house, my kind of cannibalism of the house relates a lot to that idea of something being both hugely empathetic and just material. I've heard you talk about significant form as a kind of modernist concept of material and objects that have been sort of drained of the contextualizing information and that they become almost sort of timeless. Does that relate to your view of this house? I think that in this house, as, as it's evolved, I think through my dad's illness, his mind has become unstuck from the things in this house. So things that are really resonant to me, to him no longer have any memories attached. And I think that there's some kind of blankness that's revealed that to me is exciting, but it's quite brutal. So I think that there is a modernist idea of things as material only, 
that kind of come back up through this loss of memory or loss of other meaning. So I felt like the meanings that were in the house had become interrupted and that the house was therefore available in a different way. <clears throat> to being re reused or changed in the in a similar way to we were speaking about the siege. To be being repurposed, I suppose. Kind of raw material or salvaged material. Something that Yeah, just available in a different way. Mm. But also in quite a destructive way. Like the first work that I made in the house was from my dad's coin collection. And I just made I made the whole coin collection into one sculptural kind of lozenge form by pouring molten tin into it. So all of the coins are in there. It's still the coin collection, but you can't go through them anymore. They're just fused into one object. So the transformations kind of removed them, but completed them and kind of set them as a permanent thing. I'm interested in the relationship of your sculptural practice to the question of death. And I know that you talked previously about the significance of Holbein's The Body of the Dead Christ to your practice. And also, I know that you went to meet Leonora Carrington and spoke to her about how she felt about the question of death, really just in the year or so before she died in Mexico. How does death figure in this project? That is a good question. I think that there is something about the the cadaver, which in that Holbein's Dead Christ is so startling. Holbein apparently painted it from a body that was pulled out of, of the Rhine. And it's a really alarming picture because Christ looks so utterly dead in it. But you also feel like he's about to move. So when you're standing in front of that painting, it feels like you're watching a film because there's this possibility of kind of transcendence at any moment. It's actually very similar to the Paul Nash um, Flight of the Magnolia. You feel this thing constantly becoming. And I think sculpture, because it plays out in our, in our dimension, in three dimensions and in our time, it does have a relation to death. I think in this project, in, in this house, because it's so biographical, it felt like a real, um, it felt like a real transgression to start pulling up floorboards and cutting holes out of the fabric of the house in a way that is an absolute kind of admission of materiality. And I think that has to do with mortality. But it also has to do with transformation. In some ways, it's just a very strange thing to materially still be able to be in the house because not many people get to return to the place that they grew up. I suppose the, because I've had the continued relationship with this house throughout my life, I feel very rooted here. But in, a, in another way, I feel like I've been able to deal with some of that by destroying parts of the house. That sounds terrible. But I think it's like a surgery almost.
When I look at a lot of your works, whether it be a kind of abandoned projector cinema or an abandoned quarry, there's this incredible aspect of your work that is really about a reanimation or kind of animation of objects and a kind of life of the inanimate object. And it does make me think of Paul Nash's objects in the landscape. Can you talk about the kind of possibility and play in this work? Yes, I think that I'm, I'm thinking of Paul Nash's monster field now, which maybe you're, you're referring to, which is this uh, amazing photographs that he took of trees that have fallen down that he just describes as being monsters. And he describes walking out into this field and it being full of monsters, not full of dead trees. I think that that is very much my dad's vision. So, so I think growing up in this house, like all of these collections of fossils, of corals, of shells, of butterflies, of cigarette cards, of coins, they all also had this kind of animated life of being something also in the imagination. And I think that children just have that. But I think that maybe artists continue to have that, or some people continue to have that. And I think that through my dad's dementia, there was also a huge amount of play and repurposing and, and animation and hallucination and all of those things that I find quite inspiring and lively, I suppose. Yeah, so I think in my project in the house, there is this feeling of, of play and also of transgression and consumption and preservation, strange borderline part of consumption and preservation, I guess. Thank you, Lucy, for having us here at your, at your family home. You're welcome, it's been lovely to talk to you here. Thank you to Lucy Scare for this episode of British Art Talks. Lucy's solo show, Forest on Fire, is now open at the Bloomberg Mithraeum, London. You can find a set of images related to this episode and further information at the Paul Mellon Centre website. Join us in November for our next episode of British Art Talks, The Gothic with Elizabeth Price. A transcript of an interview between John Gotto and Jim Ede as part of The Atomic Yard, a residency at Kettle's Yard, 1988-89. The Face of Dorset in Paul Nash, Dorset, Shell Guide, London, Architectural Press, 1936. Leaving the House is produced by Freya Hellier and it is a Loftus Media production. <laughs>